I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, 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 and welcome ladybirds and gentle lemurs to the Human Nature Podcast. Here we explore the ups and downs of being homo sapiens and learn a thing or two on how to be a better animal. My name is Elliot Connor, and I'm at least half elephant. But the star of the show today is none other than Nick Askew, the founder and director of Conservation Careers and acclaimed science writer and ecopreneur. Welcome, Nick. Hey, Elliot. Thanks for having me on the show. It's really great to be here. Um, yeah, looking forward to chatting. Definitely, definitely. And our listeners will know it's been a little while since we had a show. Uh, so looking forward to an interesting conversation and hopefully a very competitive quiz. So without further ado, Nick, of course, you've come onto this show with an animal of choice. And I believe that's the barn owl. Uh, why did you opt for owls? Why barn owls? I, I mean, there are species that are particularly close to my heart. Um, I grew up here in the UK. I'm, I'm British, as you can probably hear. Um, sat in the UK right now and as a teenager I was really passionate about fishing so I spent all my time out on rivers and lakesides trying often unsuccessfully to catch some fish and it just gives you a really good opportunity just to sit in nature immerse yourself in nature um, and, and really have a whole day there kind of watching the birds go past watching the butterflies trying to understand the plants you know it's, it's the kind of entire ecosystem you kind of part of and through my love of fishing as a teenager, I then became almost more interested in the birds that were flying past as the fish I was trying to catch. And so when I was probably 16, 17, 18 years old, I became much more interested in birds, bird watching. At the same time, I could kind of drive a car and that meant I could drive out to kind of local reserves, kind of around where my, my parents live. Um, and one evening, one particular evening, I went to a nature reserve called Weldrake Ings which is just outside the city of York in the Lower Derwent Valley. And while I was there, it's a beautiful summer's evening, as it is sort of this time of year, really, um, right now. And the birds were singing, binoculars were up. I was kind of looking down the river, and right in front of me was this barn owl kind of flying towards me, filling the vision of my binoculars. And even now, actually, I can kind of feel the hair standing up on the back of my neck, quite genuinely. It was just such a, an awe-inspiring sight. I'd only ever seen them before in books. And there was this amazingly beautiful charismatic bird drifting towards me which I could watch for one or two minutes as it kind of sailed past and it and, and it changed my life that, that moment really did change my life actually seeing that bar now from there I went to uni a year or two later I went to York Uni which is just down the road from where I saw that bird I studied biology it became ecology I sort of specialized um, at the same time I also ran a, a conservation volunteer group whilst at university and we used to go out to Weldrake Ings and other nature reserves. We'd build owl boxes, put up boardwalks, do stuff like that. And through that, I got to know the site manager of these reserves. He became my best friend. I lived with him for four or five years. A long story short, I then 
went into a really deep research project into barn owls in the Lower Durham Valley, studying that initial bird I actually saw several years before. So, you know, kind of came full circle and I, you know, really got passionate about barn owls. I did a PhD on barn owls, um, trying to understand why the population declined quite rapidly over the last sort of 50, 60 years prior to the study. Um, and what can we do to help improve them? So, yeah, one happenstance instance of seeing one bird really kind of changed the direction of my career, crystallized what I wanted to do. I want to help wildlife, I want to be a conservationist um, and help me to kind of study them and really kind of interact with them. And I think the other bit, just to kind of round the, the question off, actually, apart from that, they're just a beautiful bird. They really are lovely. I mean, if, you, if listeners don't know what they look like, they're big, creamy white birds. They're one of the most widely distributed species of bird on the planet. So they're found in almost every country, which is incredible. Um, they have this beautiful um, heart-shaped face, a disc-shaped face, which I think makes them look really human-like, more than any other bird actually on the planet. They have a face. Birds don't normally have mm. faces, but owls and particularly barn owls do. And I remember like, um, probably still have it now, but there was a thing called, what was it called? Google Picasso, which is like a, a file image recognition software that I used a few years back. And it would skim through all your images and categorize you know, people according to faces. So like, here's a load of pictures of Nick, here's a load of pictures of Elliot and so on. And when it did that across all my image library that I had at the time, it threw out some pictures of Barnards because it thought they were people. <laughs> Which you know, it made me think, oh yeah, actually. And it was a picture in the back of another image of someone else, you know, and it made me think, actually, they are kind of human-like. So yeah, they're a, they're a special bird for loads of different reasons. And I can talk forever as you can probably hear about them, but that's, that's kind of why I chose, yeah. Wow. Wow. Now that's an amazing answer. And I love that anecdote about the facial recognition. I've just been releasing a tawny frogmouth. So I do animal rescues here in Sydney and wow. uh, frogmouths are our owl equivalent, uh, yep. but wonderful, wonderful birds, incredibly charismatic. As you say, uh, they've definitely uh, got this human side to them and uh, this personality. But you're right. They have that a very expressive uh, face and, yeah, it's an amazing experience always doing a release, uh, but frogmouths are my favourite birds. Uh, so I definitely I connect with you on that. I think owls of all sorts are truly, truly incredible. Tell me, you mentioned earlier you did your PhD on the barn owls. I saw you've written quite a number of papers, half a dozen, on the species. So how do you go about researching barn owls, these creatures of the night, as you say, pitch black and all sorts of conditions what's that like yeah good question um i mean it really depends upon the question you're trying to answer as to how you then go about tackling that and i have to say you know i've been out of science now for sort of 10 or 15 years so from there i did all sorts of other stuff but you know rewinding the clock back to my kind of science career if you like um i was trying to answer a few different questions one question was uh, what habitat requirements do barn owls have? So what's the vegetation like and, the, and the, the prey communities within that vegetation that owls particularly are interested in? And then how can we replicate and create more of that across, you know, landscapes, if you like. So in order to answer that, you know, what habitat do barn owls need? Then you, need, you, you just need to go out and watch them and actually track their movements and then see where they hunt and compare that to where they're not hunting. Um, and because they are nocturnal through the night, then we call it crepuscular, which is dawn and dusk. Yeah. Um, it means you've got to get up really early in the morning. You've got to stay up really late at night. 
Um, and either track them, you know, just with binoculars as best you can, or even better using things like radio transmitters, radio tracking. So you put a small transmitter, often on the tail feathers, and then using an aerial, it picks up the beeps, gives you a direction. And then from that, you can either triangulate where the bird is, or you can actually go and watch it and look at it and, you know, and observe it directly, which is best. And you can see what they're doing. You can say whether they're flying, dropping down, catching prey. You can see when they're flying with prey back to a box. You can then find the nest site and do all sorts of stuff. So I think radio tracking would be the, the fundamental of studying something like a you know, frog mouth or an owl or something like that. Other aspects of it would then go to the vegetation and you do studies catching the small mammals, so the mice, shrews, voles, rats, things like that, which the owls are hunting upon. Understanding what the prey population is like there compared to other places. Why is this high density? What can we learn from this that would help other habitats have more prey and therefore help more barn owls as well? And then also just studying um, owls as they come back to the nest is a really interesting way of kind of studying. So we, we set up nest box cameras. I mean, one question I wanted to know was like, what is their activity patterns like um, through the night and through the day? And how yeah. does that contrast and compare between different landscape types? And we had a budget of almost nothing. It was one or 200 pounds for a few years to do this. So um, we rigged up, one was just some laptops with some digital cameras and triggers. So as they came in, it took a picture and you could see what the owl was bringing in. You could identify, oh, that's a mouse, that's a shrew, that's a vole, you know, which was useful. You can get time and you can get prey from that, which is great. But that was limited by just one laptop and one camera. And it needed yeah. to be fairly near a power supply when there weren't many nest boxes with good power supplies. <laughs> um, but another way we did, which I still love this to this day, like, you know, we, we got, um, I got a talking clock, which you can buy for like 10 quid on eBay. Um, and it just battery powered. Um, we got a little trigger, which was just like a button and um, a cable tie, like, you know, thick plastic cable tie, which you mounted across the entrance to the nest site. Yeah. So the owl came in, it pressed the cable tie, and then in a box, you know, 50 yards away, wide at the other end, was this um, voice-activated dictaphone and the talking <laughs> clock, and it would go, ping, the time is now, 12.52 p.m., and the voice-activated dictaphone would capture that time, that time stamp. And so all we need wow. to do is listen back to the times that have been captured. And then we knew the owls had been coming in according to that. And we made sure, well, did he tell days apart? Well, it, it did an alarm at midnight every day. So we knew as the days moved on between that. So a little bit of ingenuity got us a long way. But yeah, there's loads of different ways of studying species. And that's, that is a big part of the fun of research, actually, is what's the question? How is the best way we're going to do this? And usually the animals have their own kind of games to play that make it extra difficult, but extra fun. Incredible, incredible. Now that sounds like quite an ingenious solution, the talking <laughs> clock and all. I, I would never have imagined that as a solution, but certainly it works. So. It worked, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, since taking on this science career, as you mentioned, you've gone on to many, many other things. So I recently started this organisation of yours, this Conservation Careers, and been helping environmentalists across the globe to set out in the space. Uh, you spent, I believe, eight years at BirdLife International and mm -hmm. uh, spent uh, several years doing uh, travel work with Terra Incognita. Uh, so tell me, what's been the highlight of all that and uh, what have you most enjoyed? Oh, highlights are always a tricky one, aren't they? It's funny, <laughs> I run a podcast too and I ask the question of others. <laughs> so I know, I know you kind of put them on the spot at that point. Um, highlights, when I think back, I mean, I, I loved all the owl stuff, the owl research that I did. That was a real happy time in my career. Um, and I think at the end of that, I realized that was great, but science wasn't quite right for me. I wanted to do something else. 
So other stuff, super quick, you know, I did ecological consultancy for a couple of years, uh, which was interesting. Again, not quite right for me, but, you know, got me out in the field, trained me up a little bit and got me better with some of the kind of field study things that I was doing. Um, BirdLife, I then worked in communications, marketing and fundraising for eight years, as you touched on. And I think a highlight through that was living in the Pacific for a few years. So we, we moved okay. out, my wife and I, to Fiji, and, and I managed wow. um, the program development manager, it was called. So I developed and designed conservation projects across the Pacific region. So Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Cook Islands, um, Samoa, Palau, French Polynesia, and a few others. And, and the, the idea was to kind of develop projects with our partners on the ground, NGOs in each of those countries, so BirdLife Australia in your country, um, and, and then combine them together at a regional level, which we could then package and secure the funds from donors. So I think highlights through that was just securing significant grants, um, yeah. which enabled really exciting conservation projects to happen on the ground. Probably, uh, you know, big ones for us in the region was um, invasive species eradications from small Pacific islands, you know. So Pacific's really important, particularly for seabirds, but for loads of different stuff. And on these tiny little specks of dirt, you know, these precious little islands, that's where seabirds can breed and then go out and obviously, you know, feed on the, you know, plentiful fish stocks that are found, you know, through the, through the ocean. And, you know, through human history, we've moved things like rats and cats and pigs and goats and all sorts across the region that shouldn't be there, that cause all sorts of problems for the birds and other wildlife. So we had projects that would go in to these really remote places and then would remove these invasive species allowing the native species to come back. So securing projects that allowed that to happen were real nice moments. And one particular moment for me through all that was we went to um, an island in Fiji called Monariki, um, which is really famous because it's the castaway island with Tom Hanks from the film. Um, it's, okay, it's his yeah. island, you know, the, it's, the, you know, it's the castaway island, if you, if you know. And um, we spent a you know, really happy weekend there studying the species, but then the helicopters came in and actually did the eradication work on the island. And then I now know cycling forward six, seven years later, it's been a huge success, as have dozens of other projects that BirdLife's been involved with. So, so that, that's, that's been a real, a real highlight, I think, for me, was that, that time and that place that we were, we were doing that work, yeah. Others to talk about too, but it's always teamwork. It's not me. It's, it's, conservation is a team project always, and it's an international, it's a collaborative project. You know? So it's, I think probably another highlight from that extending is just you know, the community of people that you get to interact and work with. Just like me talking to you now, it's all about making friends, really. Um, we're all on the same page because we share this basic premise that we believe wildlife is important, we believe it's beautiful, and we want to help it. It's having a tough time. Awesome, awesome. Now you've certainly had a life behind you. You've been very, very busy with everything that you've been up to. Uh, but I, I think I have time for one more question on this show. Uh, so with COVID and with lockdowns across the globe, of course, people have been forced to stay at home uh, to self-isolate in some cases. I don't know where you are in the UK. It's been worse than for me in Sydney. Uh, but of course, uh, that situation is common to uh, many, many, many people. When I was researching this show, I came across a lovely story about two people in Devon a little while ago who'd spent a year making owl calls uh, to each other, not realizing uh, they were doing it, thinking they were doing it to other owls, but doing it to their neighbors. Uh, I love so, that story, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really funny anecdote to recount. Uh, but 
what what do you think COVID has changed in terms of our perspectives towards nature? How has that changed the dynamics within environmentalism for you? It's yeah, it's a big a big topic, a big question, really. I think COVID has meant a lot of people obviously have had to stay much closer to home, um, yeah. so a lot less travel, um, a lot quieter roads, quieter skies. I mean, during the, you know, the, the real lockdowns here in the UK, the, uh, the roads were empty. It was, I mean, I have to say in a way, it was wonderful. I kind of enjoyed that time and that, that peace and that space it kind of gave everyone and it simplified life. So, you know, I've never seen so many cuckoos before here in the UK. And I think it's because I was more aware of, of them because there were fewer distractions. Um, also, perhaps they were having a safer passage. These are migratory birds that go down to Africa and back through the Mediterranean each year. Um, and they are hunted as they pass through on their migratory um, journeys. And, and maybe there are a few people out there hunting them this year. I'd love to know, you know, and see what the studies show following up with, with things like that. Um, so I think there's a greater appreciation for nature at home and the importance of having outdoor spaces to go walk and exercise and reconnect and, and yeah, and everything that, that nature actually just gives us as a, a personal, as a human being, you know, makes you feel good about yourself. Um, and that's the kind of the, the base level. So I think it kind of helped there. Um, for me, I think sort of reflecting on COVID as we sort of slowly unlock, hopefully, and we did studies through conservation careers and looked at the impact on conservationists and on the industry because the number of jobs just, you know, dropped almost overnight as organizations stepped back yeah. from recruiting, you know, protected their budgets, you know, quite rightly. And that's starting to ease now. We're seeing jobs really coming back, you know, more rapidly over, over the last few weeks. And we're kind of tracking that quite closely. Um, to see how that is going to impact the industry, you know, looking forwards. But I think for me, you know, COVID is a huge pandemic. We're, we're tackling it as a global community. You know, it's got all sorts of challenges and God knows how long it's going to you know, continue on, on for. But beyond that, there's other challenges we're facing as a global society. So, you know, we're facing biodiversity loss is such a huge thing. You know, we are losing species left, right and centre across the planet at an alarming rate. You know, we're also looking at, you know, climate change. And, and the associations with things like, you know, issues yeah. for us as the human race, but, you know, more importantly for biodiversity and more generally, so they're kind of linked topics. And we shouldn't, you know, lose our eye off the ball. You know, these are still big issues that we need to face. And what COVID has said to me is that look at what the world's governments can change almost overnight. Look at what they can achieve, you know, when faced with a really big problem, bang, you know, almost coordinated effort, not quite, but huge, significant effort has gone into tackling this quite rightly. Why can't we do something, you know, of a similar nature uh, as imminently and as urgently as it needs to happen for wildlife losses and for things like climate change? You know, we've shown that governments and politicians can actually do this. You know, I think, I think human populations communities you know have been placing huge you know political pressure i guess on governments for changes think about you know greta thunberg and and the, the rallies that we've seen um you know over recent years i think the time you know i've talked to lots of different leaders actually through conservation careers through our podcast and through other things talking to them about what, what we need to do and the message i get from the ceos of big wildlife ngos is actually politicians and leaders and business leaders and others are listening now you know they understand they need to do something they understand it's important they now need to know what they need to actually do you know like the debate's been won the time is now for action so i actually think we've got an opportunity now through covid to sort of 
unlock and, and come to a new normal that is actually more environmentally sensitive, you know, and tackle some of the big issues, you know, in a much more coherent, much more impactful way. Because I think we've just been window dressing really until recent years. Um, and now we can do something about it. So I'm, I, I'm hopeful. I am really hopeful to, you know, uh, that things are going to get a little bit better and COVID, you know, for all the horrendous things. And I feel for anyone who's lost families or friends or been impacted by it. But I do think there is a silver lining for this pandemic that's going to hopefully, you know, benefit um, people and the planet at the same time. Thank you, Nick. I think that's a wonderful vision. And of course, with COVID being a zoonotic disease, of course, there's that very, very strong link now. Uh, between human health, human well-being, and uh, that the well-being of ecosystems and our environment. Yeah. So, I think moving forward, if we can take that on board, if we can uh, push back, perhaps this uh, what was going to be a 2020 biodiversity super year. So all these major conferences, all these big organisations, politicians making ambitious goals, hopefully uh, for mm. our world environments. Uh, then 2021 could be a really big one uh, for conservation for the field as a whole. Uh, anyway, I think that's time up for us uh, right now. So we'll be back after the break very, very shortly for the Human Nature Quiz Round, where Nick will be competing against two of our faithful listeners on 10 questions about his animal choice, which is, of course, the barn owl. more to the human nature podcast here on the show today is nick askew the founder and director of conservation careers and acclaimed science writer and ecopreneur but as this is the human nature quiz round he'll be facing up against a team of two randomly selected audience members for the chance to prove his wits against uh, these very very tough competition are you feeling confident nick no not at all <laughs> <laughs> Well, there we go. Our expectations are now at rock bottom, so I'm sure we've only got improvements to come. Uh, so, without any further ado, Nick will be facing up against uh, Jon Gilfan, who is a German ecologist with a particular fascination for bugs, and his favourite bird indeed, similar to myself, is the frogmouth. So, he's looking forward to an owl themed quiz. And we have Cohen, who's a Tanzanian a conservationist, a, a geography graduate uh, with also an interest in the natural world. So uh, both of you, I think you'll have a competition ahead of you to beat Nick at his animal of choice. Are you two feeling confident? No, I want to leave the road immediately. No, no, all right. <laughs> Great, great. Well, I'm sure you've worked out by now the rules, uh, but to clarify, uh, they're very, very simple. I'll read a question. Either contestant can at any point make their buzzer sound. The fastest to the mark gets to answer first, but if they get it wrong, then their opponent will have the chance to steal the point for the correct answer. So for question one, we'll have Nick and Jon Kelfan. And your question is, 
In which country is an owl a word for a foolish person? Your options are A, India, B, Nepal, C, Germany, D, France. Oh, I'm I'm pending between India and France. Uh-huh. <laughs> Says the German, that rules out one. <laughs> yeah, because for Very me, if, if, if it's the Germany, I would have known it, so... <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, okay. Go ahead, okay. Nick. I'm gonna go... I'm gonna go France. I think India, it's like something to do with knowledge and wisdom is my guess, and it's not <laughs> Germany, so I'm gonna go France. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. France is not the correct answer. I was in France quite recently, actually, or last year, and they have many words for owl, more words than any other language I know. But unfortunately, it's not a byword for a stupid person. So, Yonkel Than, you'll have the chance to steal the point. What oh. are you going to say? Well, no, I would switch to Nepal because it's a very... No, no, I stay with India. I stay with India. I stay with India. We go with India. Yeah. Very good. India is the correct answer. So we have one point to the listeners to Yonkel Fan and Cohen. Can I add something, maybe? Yes, of course, um, of course. Nick will know it, and I know that um, owls have a very bad image, a bad reputation. And back in the days, they um, nailed owls in front of the doors to protect the house against yes. bad energy. So they still have a bad image for many people. But you don't use it as a, yeah, as a bad word to someone. But interesting. No, definitely, okay. definitely. This is what I wanted to, to add. Okay. I think because of the association with the night and uh, with often their calls as well, uh, they have had that association with death. Actually, mm-hmm. the word owl is comes from the Latin word for. I think it's the call of like a, a lamented soul. So someone who's crying out in misery uh, is something like. Ululata, something like that, uh, is just like onomatopoeic, so uh, having uh, that sound. Uh, but yeah, owls have had a bad rap uh, when it comes to that reputation. Mm. Uh, but in India, it comes to mean a foolish person. So we'll move on to question two. And question two is classic. And of course, uh, I suspect uh, many people would know uh, that owls can rotate their necks through an extraordinary range. It's about 270 degrees. So my question for you, and I'll take an answer from anyone, is how many neck vertebrae do owls have? I know mammals, all mammals have seven. All mammals have seven. Most mammals have seven. I believe sloths don't. I think there's a few exceptions. Most mammals have seven. I know the giraffe has the same amount like a mouse, so... Uh, but with yes. birds, well, I could, I could Google it now, but I don't do it, so it would be mean. No, no Google be cheating. <laughs> Is anyone going to guess? I'll take the closest answer. I'll say it was seven, it's just a guess. You're going to say seven? Okay, yeah, Nick, what are you going to go? I think four. Oh, we've got an answer from Cone. Cone's saying four. I okay. guess four. Uh, can I go the same or do I have to go different? <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to go different. I'll go eight. <laughs> You'll go eight. Well, eight was actually a very good move because they have 14. Oh. oh. <laughs> not going to do. 
extraordinary, extraordinary amount. Uh, but that's how they achieve it, essentially, how they manage to uh, swivel their heads uh, through mm. almost a full rotation. Uh, I believe the record is swans. Swans have 25. Uh, wow. But 14 is quite incredible. That's a number of bones to have in uh, your neck. And owls, uh, yes, a double the number of humans. So we're on one all after question two. And I'll move on to question three immediately. Question three is a good fun one. And the question is, William Shakespeare actually coined this stereotypical owl call, so the twit twoo. But which play did he do it in? Your options are A. Macbeth, B. Romeo and Juliet, C. Love's Labour's Lost, or D. King Lear. I guess I've followed typically here in the UK, and the, the twit's like the male, it's grit, grit, and the female's the so you get this duetting. Um, I, I'm going to guess. I'm going to have a guess if that's all right. So one in four. Um, hmm. I'm going to go for Macbeth because they're often associated with death, as we talked about a minute ago. And Macbeth is a kind of, you know, it's it's certainly a slightly morbid tale. So I'm going. That's my guess. Macbeth is a good guess, and I like that logic. But unfortunately, it's not the right answer. So I'll give listeners a go. Uh, the remaining options are. Uh, Love's Labour's Lost, Romeo and Juliet, or King Lear? Mm. King Lear. Cone is going King Lear. King Lear is not the right answer either, unfortunately. So that will be zero points to both teams for this round. Okay. The correct answer was Love's Labour's Lost. That yes. was my other years after. <laughs> <laughs> I knew Romeo and Juliet for, for sure not because we had it in school. And if oh, yes, there you go. Old, I... Think back, high school days, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which place did you do? No, that's where it was coined. Uh, it's then nightly sings the staring owl to who, twit, to a merry note. Mm -hmm. It's lovely Shakespeare, uh, but he coined this stereotypical owl and as and Nick's mentioned it's based off the tawny owl call, uh, so that call and response, uh, but Shakespeare apparently didn't get that, so he attributed it to the one bird. Anyway, anyway, we're still drawn after question three, so I think we need another question to see if one team can pull ahead. This one's an interesting one. So the scientific name of which bird refers to the owl? Your options are A, a pelican, B, a kakapo, C, a frogmouth, D, a nightjar. Okay, no, Nick goes first. Nick, go ahead. It's a guess. It's a guess. Okay. I'm not confident in this one. I know nightjar's Cap Caprimulgus europea, and I don't think that's, and that's kind of like a frogmouth. They're kind of, yeah, a hawk. Um, Nighthawk, but I think the kakapo is like the, they call it like the owl parrot or something like that, the night parrot certainly. So I'm going to go kakapo, it's total guess. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, total guess that it is, is correct. Ooh. Indeed, indeed. Uh, the scientific name of the kakapo is Strigops hapropotilus, I believe. Uh, so a sensitive eyed owl, uh, but yes. 
and neither of the obvious answers, so the nightjar, the frogmouth, uh, the frogmouth, I believe, is the slow-footed one. Uh, so, poor Dargus. Yeah. Uh, but still the one who looks like an owl. Yeah, the one who has weak feet, but still looks like an owl. That is his scientific yes. name. Uh. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, well, so we have two points now to Nick. Nick has made a smashing lead in the first four questions. We're going to need to come back in the six to come. But question five is, how often, approximately, in recent history, is a new owl species discovered? Again, I'll take the closest answer. Everyone can have a guess. I would say once every 10 years in the last 100 years. I would say maybe 10, 10 and 100 years. It's just a rough guess. One every 10, you're saying. So I can just go like one higher. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ooh, no, 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 not again. <laughs> Is it nearest? Um, I don't oh, think there's flag. very many. I don't think there's very many being discovered in the last century. I'm probably wrong. I have no idea. So one every 30 years. One every 30 years, it's not a bad guess. Unfortunately, actually, Yonkelthan got it first try, so that was an incredible Ooh. guess. It's uh -huh. almost exactly one every 10 years. Oh. Very, very good. Oh. I think you almost deserve two points for that. I'll give you one and a half. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, one and a half. Okay. Two and a half to two, there we go. Smashing, smashing lead. And we'll move on to question six, which is, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, many, many animals are forbidden to be eaten. Which of the following is not amongst them? You can choose an owl, a vulture, a lobster, a snail, or a swan. It's a vulture. I think it's a vulture. It is a vulture. Very well done. Oh, oh well done. Code has got a point for the team. Wow, this is going to be a very high scoring competition at the rate we're going. I don't think we've ever had such a strong start for either team. We've got three and a half points to the listeners and two points to Nick, which means you could very well beat the current record, which I believe is five points out of ten. Question seven is, a owler is someone who does what? You may choose someone who illegally exports clamshells. You can choose someone who illegally exports owls. You can choose someone who illegally exports sheep. Or you can choose someone who illegally exports pigs. Or oh, I take clamshell because the other ones you are hard to export illegally. Ooh. <laughs> That's clever. Do you think an owl is someone who exports clamshells? Unfortunately, that's not the case. Mm. So Nick, you're going to have a go. So it's was it pigs, sheep or owls? Yes. Um, I'm just going to go for the obvious one and say owls. <laughs> Fortunately, it's not an owl either. I, I, I don't imagine there's a huge trade in legally exporting <laughs> owls. But 
Well, there is some, <laughs> but perhaps Hopefully more than not. illegally exporting clamshells. So, <laughs> balance of probability, perhaps. But no, it's someone who illegally exports sheep. Indeed, oh. indeed. And yes, John Gilfang, you're right. I am making it up on the spot, so <laughs> you might be able to yeah. tell. But unfortunately, you didn't manage on that occasion. So neither team will score on that point, which means we stay at three and a half points to the listeners and two points to Nick. So question eight is, according to old English folklore, if a woman fed her husband roast owl, what effect would be achieved? Mm -hmm. You can choose. A, they would become more sexually active. B, they would become subservient, so they would follow their every wish. C, they would run immediately from the house and eventually, obviously, get a divorce. Or D, they would take to household chores, so they would become a domestic servant. Oof. Sexual active because most of the things, all of the things, if you eat tigers or whatnot, as mainly to to use it as a Viagra or something like that. It's not to use that someone follows your rule. So that's why I take sexual active. It's a good guess. It's a good guess. And you're very much right about your logic again. Uh, but it's not the right answer, unfortunately. Yes, it's not. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, Nick. Would you like to take a guess? I'm gonna uh, just total guess, like I'm gonna guess the one about running away. I'm just thinking about flight and you know, and that sort of connection. I can see from your face it's a no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess B. Very yes. good. Which is? B is the right answer. So yes, yeah. the reason why a conniving uh, wife might do this is if they wanted to have more power yeah. with their husband. Uh, yes, it's fascinating. I never knew that before I uh, had yeah. a dig around. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> maybe you should try it out. There we go. There we go. So two more questions. And indeed, the listeners are on four and a half points, which is incredible, incredible. Uh, they could still make a record. Uh, Nick, you've got a bit of a way to go. Uh, you're yeah. on two points, so it might be hard for you to make it up, but I'm sure you can get close. Question nine is the copper penis owl is the monster used in a country to stop children from misbehaving as a threat. Which country is it used in? Your options are, again, India, in the UK, in Hungary, or in Ecuador? I guess India. You're going to guess India? Because, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, India's not the right answer this time. You would have got it right on the first question, but not now. I'm going to go Ecuador. Oh, You're going to go Ecuador? It's, it's not a bad guess, Nick, but it's also not right. So... <laughs> We'll have one more guess to see if we can get uh, it. Go, go what UK. Is what is, you, UK for sure. No, what was the other one? UK hungry. or Hungary. I'll take Hungary. Very good. We got there. <laughs> Process of elimination. Indeed. Indeed. 
<laughs> so one more question. And indeed, we have listeners on five and a half points, which is incredible. I believe that is a record. So congratulations. Uh, but see if we can make it six and a half. And Nick, unfortunately, not doing so well at this stage. You're still on two. Uh, <laughs> but too late now. Of, of course, the last question is the most important. So uh, you may know that Charles Darwin uh, took a particular fancy to eating animals. Uh, but which one did he find most disgusting? Your options are a bittern, a giant tortoise, an armadillo, or an owl. <laughs> That was two very fast buzzers, but I'll give it to Nick. Oh, um, I'm going to go giant tortoise. They used to carry them on board ships because they could actually keep them alive for a long period of time and keep the meat there for, for longer. But I can't believe they tasted very nice. So that's, that's my logic. Well, it's very logical and we're doing well on the logic side of things. <laughs> but it's got the right answer. So okay. listeners will have a guess. Go mate, on. Mate. My guess is so all because we have a quiz about all and not a quiz <laughs> about Amadillos and so that's why I've chosen the all. Not a Did quiz you about guess? <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. It was a brown owl. I believe his word was indescribable. Uh, how he uh, described his taste uh, it definitely pushed them off at the local club. So he was part of this Cambridge, the glutton or the, or the gourmet club and tasting mm. these foreign animals. And then on his voyages, uh, you're right. He did eat tortoises on many an occasion, Nick, uh, but I believe tortoise meat is meant to taste quite nice. Uh, though mm. I certainly took uh, a liking to uh, the creatures for, for that reason and I believe they weren't scientifically described for about 200 years uh, so no specimen made it back to England uh, to London because they just kept on being eaten by these sailors yeah. on route as oh. it's an interesting story that but yes uh, the right answer was the owl so the leaders are the listeners and they have stormed ahead into six and a half points which is an incredible score and it's a record for the human nature podcast so very, very well done to Jan Kelfan and Cohn. Uh, you made an incredible team in spite of uh, the circumstances, in spite of the connection and being half a world away from each other. So that was a stellar performance. And of course, we'll be back next week for another episode of Human Nature. Till then, stay safe and goodbye. <laughs>